This is a podcast by The Straits Times. The world's oceans are in trouble. Overfishing, pollution, vast amounts of plastic waste and increasing climate impacts are taking a heavy toll. Yet, oceans are a treasure trove of nature, support vital fisheries and regulate the world's weather. We can't survive without them. Yet, there's good news. Earlier this month, more than 190 nations agreed to the text of a new UN treaty to conserve and sustainably use the high seas. It's the first treaty to focus on better protection for an area covering more than 60% of the world's oceans, the vast expanse outside national boundaries. The treaty, called BBNJ, is nearly two decades in the making and builds on another recent UN biodiversity agreement. To find out more about the new treaty, we speak to Dr. Edward Game, lead scientist and director of conservation, Asia Pacific for the Nature Conservancy. Welcome to the show, Eddie. Thanks for having me, David. Now, Eddie, could you begin with a quick rundown on the new treaty and how it will reduce the risks faced by the world's oceans? Absolutely. And so, so this new treaty, the name of the treaty is Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction. Shortened to BBNJ. You might also hear it referred to as the High Seas Treaty. And I guess the key thing to start with is that this deals with all the oceans that sits outside of national jurisdiction. So for listeners that are not totally familiar with that, that at present there's an international agreement that was ratified back in the 90s that establishes every country can claim some territorial waters out to 200 nautical miles. That's a bit less than 400 kilometers. And that's the waters of national jurisdiction. But there's a great deal of ocean that's beyond that. Um, in fact, the majority of the ocean sits beyond that. And it's a bit of a kind of no man's land. And it's that area that this treaty deals specifically with. And I think what's very significant is it's the, it's really the first time that there's been an agreement, a pathway for kind of binding commitments on managing those areas that are outside national jurisdiction. In the past, this has been, it's often sort of referred to as the wild west of the the oceans, if you like, areas that are challenging because they're so far away from people. You know, your average person never gets to these areas because they're in the middle of the ocean. It's expensive to get there. And yet there are some really valuable resources there, um, chief amongst them fisheries resources. And so there's a lot of nations going out there and collecting fish in this area. And these fish move enormous distances. So it's something that requires a large cooperation, almost a global cooperation to deliver effectively on. Um, and so that that's what the, the promise of reducing these risks is, uh, a mechanism for kind of binding cooperation on this vast area of the ocean. That's great. And just explain a little bit more about the growing threats the world's oceans face and why that's bad for humanity and nature. So, you know, for instance, in what ways are the oceans suffering from the impacts of climate change? And yet, ironically, the oceans are also helping slow down the pace of climate change too. The oceans are sort of the great carbon sink of the planet. We often talk about rainforests as the lungs of the planet, but it's actually a great deal of carbon-absorbing material often phytoplankton, so plant-based plankton that floats around the ocean, and they are able to absorb tremendous amounts of carbon dioxide. And so 
anyways, the, the sort of bulk of the, the climate impacts that we're experiencing on the planet are getting locked up in the ocean. Now, that's very fortunate for us because a lot of those are getting locked up in the ocean and they're not in the atmosphere. And many of those, um, a lot of that carbon that gets soaked into the ocean ends up sinking to the bottom of the ocean, the sort of abyssal floor of these, the deep depths of the high seas. And, and uh, our hope and current science is that a lot of it stays there. Um, and that's what's actually helping regulate a lot of the, the climate on, on this planet at the moment. But on the sort of flip side to that, oceans do suffer a great deal from, from the change we've already seen. Now, I, it is probably worth distinguishing a bit between a lot of the impacts you'll hear about, which are happening closer to the coast. So obviously coral reefs suffer enormously from climate change. And in the tropics, they, they suffer from both temperatures getting too hot and they suffer from acidification as a result of the increased carbon dioxide in the oceans. Uh, we see sort of, I guess, further towards the poles in both directions, you see things like kelp forests struggling to adapt to, to increase water temperatures. They're severe impacts, but all of those are also inside national waters of national jurisdiction. And I think it's fair to say that outside national jurisdictions, the areas that this treaty deals with, some of the climate impacts are a little unknown. We know it's absorbing a great deal of heat, but these uh, ecosystems that um, despite being on our planet and not necessarily well well studied or well known, just because it's, it's a huge area, very expensive to get there. And, um, you know, as we've seen from movies and documentaries, it's really hard to get down kilometres deep and understand what's happening at the bottom of those oceans. So, And of course, um, oceans hold, I think, the greatest amount of biodiversity on the planet, from fisheries to, to the kelp forests and coral reefs that you just mentioned. And probably many species that remain undiscovered. You know, oceans, I think, are probably the one, probably the deep oceans, it's the one or remaining area of the planet that we know the least about. So if we continue to lose such abundance, what does that mean for us? I, I think you're absolutely right that it probably is the area of the planet we know the least about. Certainly when, you know, when we do get the resources to go out and do scientific work in the deep oceans you know, it's sort of a, a catalog of new species and new ecosystems and whole new ways of living on the planet that gets discovered almost every one of those those journeys and they are tremendously abundant and i'm glad you used that word abundant too because it's a, often a bit hard for people to appreciate just how much we pull out of the ocean so probably most people have at the moment or in the near future will have a can of tuna somewhere in their house or consume some tuna we pull literally millions and millions of tons of tuna out of the ocean every year, and a great deal of those out of the high seas. Um, and I'll, we'll come back to this because even those we don't pull out of the high seas depend on the high seas. And you know that's that's important if you like tuna, obviously. But it's also important because millions of tons of protein on this planet are hard to replace in other ways. So if we decided, okay, yeah. We, we, we can do without millions of tons of tuna. We have to find millions of tons of protein on land through other sources. And the impacts on, on biodiversity of kind of replacing that would be extraordinary. Really do have the potential if we, if we play our cards right in these oceans to keep on pulling millions of tons of tuna out for forever. It's almost a forever to sort of the ultimate sustainability on this planet. But there's quite a lot we have to do in order to, to get to that point because we're, we're seeing not just an impact on our current fishing on those on the fish we're catching the tuna or the, the marlin and um, other big things we like to eat but also a huge impact on things we don't like to eat um, sharks for instance you know this and that's a that's a real area of, of biodiversity loss that we know about 
in the in the pelagic ocean in these areas beyond national jurisdiction that we've seen a, a huge reduction 90 percent over 90 percent of shark populations decimated as a result of fishing something else that's that's quite important to flag that was a big point of discussion for this particular treaty was other kinds of wealth that we might get from genetic resources perhaps in the in the future and that was actually a really big discussion point for this treaty how do you share in that wealth especially as there's only a small number of nations that could reasonably exploit that at the moment i think it's fair to say that a lot of that is is, is unknown you know what wealth what sort of medicinal or um, industrial applications we might get from marine genetic resources but this treaty puts in place both some environmental impact assessment safeguards to try and protect that from other activities and also a benefit sharing mechanisms for for countries all around the world to benefit find us on apple spotify google podcasts or via the google voice assistant and amazon alexa enabled devices and now back to our podcast episode so let's turn to southeast asia and i'm glad you were mentioning the importance of fisheries and the huge demand for protein and also the risk of overfishing of course so why is the treaty so important you know to this region which of course has a very strong maritime history and connections of course yeah and no, i think you know so on one level this treaty will forever be associated with the southeast asian region because the the president of the the talks of the, the treaty negotiations uh, was Ambassador Lee from Singapore and she had a lovely line when they when they finally reached the agreement of, of the ship reaching the shore. And so I think likely or not, there's always going to be a, a sort of Southeast Asian association with this treaty. But you're right, this is also a, a, a region that eats a lot of fish and does a lot of fishing. And even for those nations that don't fish a lot on the high seas, this area, they still stand to benefit a, a great deal from this if this treaty turns into effective protection on the high seas because one of the big outcomes that we know from a lot of modeling studies a lot of a lot of fishery science studies would happen is that would increase the productivity inside the national waters of fishing nations and that would be true for especially those southeast asian nations indonesia myanmar thailand with with access to coastal waters but without big fleets that fish in those deep seas outside national jurisdictions yeah, so that leads on to, I guess, the next question. And I think you've, you've probably partly answered this as to how the, this treaty can make a difference, not only in improving the health and management of fisheries in this region and beyond, but also tackle the critical issues of pollution and ensure stronger oversight of other potentially harmful activities such as seabed mining, which hasn't started to occur yet, but there are you know, proposals to, you know, to do that. Now, there are some key provisions in this treaty. And one of the things that I'm sure you've seen excitement about and, and sometimes even some misstatements in the media about is the potential to create protected areas in the ocean in these areas beyond national jurisdiction and at, at present protected areas are largely decisions for national governments not for international bodies and um, this treaty creates the potential for the, the parties to the treaty to nominate uh, marine protected areas that would be closed to fishing potentially outside areas of national jurisdiction and that's we know that these protected areas are a very powerful way to sustainably manage resources and, and to conserve ocean resources and in the high seas they're potentially large enough to to do that for big big things like tuna and marlin that we can't currently do often just inside national jurisdictions um so that that's one that's one kind of key 
um, way that this treaty would make a, a big difference to the health of fisheries. And like I said, that one of the outcomes potentially of better management in the high sea and less fishing in the high seas is that you have more fishing in national waters. And that opens the door for a lot of the sorts of sustainable fishing approaches that the, the organization that I work for, for instance, the Nature Conservancy has been partnering with countries on innovations like uh, making sure we have electronic cameras on every major fishing vessel so we understand exactly what's being caught, using that to feed directly into the management decisions that, that governments make. So overall, we feel that there's a really strong potential that fishery sustainability will increase as a result of national governments getting involved. The two other things you mentioned just just briefly, one was about sort of other pollution and things like that. And that, that is a big piece of this treaty. This treaty creates an environmental impact assessment process for activities occurring in the high sea. That's quite rigorous. I guess one of the things we're, we're perhaps a little disappointed with from the conservation community, but we hope we worked on is that it still gives the precedence of managing those to existing organizations that to govern some of that area. So in the fisheries space, there's um, these regional fisheries management organizations, shipping is is governed by the International Maritime Organization. And I'll get to the seabed in a second, but, th but those organizations have existing environmental impact assessment processes in place that we hope will be strengthened as a result of this, this treaty. So that would help manage things like pollution coming from fisheries or shipping. Um, and seabed mining, it, it, it falls in a kind of similar area. This, this is going to be tremendously helpful in managing new kind of new seabed mining exploration areas, but, but a lot of existing stuff is managed by the um, the seabed, the International Seabed Authority, and they've got some of their own processes. But you know, that, that mining on seabed is something that we have to take very seriously because one of the um, one of the features of the very deep ocean is it's very stable. It doesn't move a lot. And so if you disturb it, it's quite possible that we see this sort of suspended plume of sediment sitting at the bottom of the ocean for, for up tens of thousands of years, potentially. It just won't, won't kind of resuspend. So it could have very drastic, long-lasting consequences on the ocean. Yes, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a big concern, right, that we um, sort of take steps or, you know, um, activities that we don't really understand the full consequences of. So in addition to this treaty, of course, um, there are other treaties or uh, instruments that also govern activities on the seas. So how does this treaty of BBNJ fit in with other treaties that have been agreed? I mean, how does it complement the other agreements, I guess, including, I think, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, for example? So this is actually an instrument um, sort of within the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Seas. Being a treaty, it still needs to be ratified separately. But you could consider this sort of sits within the broader framework of, of it's, it's commonly referred to as UNCLOS, the United Nations Convention on Law of the Seas. But as I just mentioned, it also has a, a tight relationship with these other uh, management conventions that, that are managed things like the, the things that we have to manage seabeds and fisheries and, and shipping operations. And that's something that remains to be seen a little bit over the over the next period of kind of hopefully ratification and implementation exactly how those existing treaties interface with this new one and and uh, a great hope is of course that this this is a, a mechanism for broader cooperation than we see with some of those existing treaties and enhanced environmental protections yes and so just as a final question i mean the text for this treaty has been agreed but of course it's not going into force yet it still has to be ratified accepted by quite a number of countries. So 
what are these next steps and how long might this take? Well, the, the, the key next step, yes, is now that the text is agreed, we need nations to ratify it. And as is fairly typical for these UN conventions or, or treaties, you need 60 parties to ratify it for coming to force. Um, how long might that take? It's a, it's a difficult question to answer. We hope it's a lot faster than, than some previous ones. So give you an example that the United Nations Convention on Law of the Seas, I think that was passed from memory, from memory, it was somewhere in the early nineties and it wasn't rat- early eighties and it wasn't ratified until 94. Didn't come into force. So now I think it was over a decade of our expectations that it's much, much faster this time, but, um, it could take a couple of years realistically for, for that to happen. Um, and then of course it's binding on those parties that, that ratified that. And then each party needs to take steps to make sure that they, uh, incorporate that appropriately into their own laws and legislations because it does put a burden on countries to be the ones that manage the impacts sort of emanating from those countries in these areas beyond national jurisdiction. But all in all, it seems to be protection for the oceans is moving in the, in the right direction finally. And, you know, hopefully we won't run out of fish and the oceans won't boil because of climate change. So thanks very much for joining us today, Eddie. Uh, pleasure, David. It's a, nice to talk about a positive development in the environment. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.